Welcome to the Ortho Eval Pal podcast, where we can help you build confidence with your orthopedic evaluation and management skills. We hope you enjoy the show. And now, for your host, Paul Marquis. Hello, and welcome to episode 244 of the Ortho Eval Pal podcast. I'm your host, Paul Marquis, PT, and today we're going to be talking about 10 orthopedic injury lookalikes that you need to know. We'll talk about how deceiving the human body can be. We'll go over 10 examples of orthopedic lookalikes that I see quite often. We'll go over why some diagnoses look like others. And then for some of these, we'll talk about how to differentiate one from the other. And we'll be going over so much more. But if you don't mind holding for a moment, we're going to hear a word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by MedBridge. Harnessing the power of technology to help you advance your career and improve patient outcomes. MedBridge delivers over 2,000 evidence-based CE courses and more than 7,000 specialized patient exercises available whenever you need them from wherever you are. MedBridge goes beyond CEUs. They're leading the space. From interactive webinars led by top industry leaders to the first ever HEP patient mobile app, MedBridge has taken learning to the next level for over 200,000 PTs, OTs, ATs, SLPs, and nurses and those they serve. For a limited time, Use promo code OEP to receive $175 off your annual subscription. At MedCore Professionals, we offer mobility aids, bracing and supports, compression garments, post-mastectomy care, and much more. Your health and well-being are important to us. Your recovery is our priority. Our certified team will guide you to the right products based on your medical needs, recent procedures, or mobility restrictions. Visit us on Route 1 in Scarborough or at MedCorePro.com. We are Mark and Kelly Hassett, owners of MedCore. And we keep you moving forward. Welcome back, everyone. So we have a little different format today for our podcast. This is going to be more of a a listing of different diagnoses that I commonly see that often will look like other diagnoses. And we've talked about these in the past just so that you don't miss a diagnosis, okay? We often think about an area or maybe uh, we get a referral and it says you know, this, and it is actually something else. Um, And then oftentimes we just see so many of one thing that we just kind of automatically think in that direction when we see somebody come in with what looks like that particular issue. Um, So today we're going to be talking about um, different diagnoses that look like others. And, um, you know, first of all, there are going to be way more than just 10 of these, but I'm going to be talking about the 10 that I see most often. The other thing I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to link a video to match up with each of these diagnoses so you can see some of the patients that we've had in the past and how maybe some of these look like just kind of feed themselves right into these diagnoses. So the first one we are going to be talking about, number one is going to be The greater trochanteric bursitis. And for those of you who have um, taken a look at uh, my ebook on lateral hip pain, everybody first thinks about greater trochanteric bursitis when a patient points to their lateral hip. Okay. But on many occasions, I've seen people undergo injections to the greater trochanteric bursa. They've received modalities, treatment, they've heated, they've iced it just to find out that they have a L5 nerve root compression. Now, how can we tell that it's an L5 nerve root compression? Well, you may uh, poke the lateral side of the hip and maybe it's not that tender, but oftentimes it is naturally, even if there isn't a bursitis there. Um, Maybe you resist that lateral hip musculature, so you uh, resist abduction 
and uh, maybe there's no increased pain, but you do a straight leg raise and maybe you dorsiflex that foot a little bit and um, they develop this isolated lateral gluteal and lateral hip pain, um, which could certainly be a nerve root compression coming from L5 nerve root. So remember to take that one into consideration when you see somebody with some lateral hip pain. Number two, lateral epicondylitis can be lateral epicondylitis, but could also come from a C7 nerve root compression. And I've seen this often enough where patients are treated for lateral epicondylitis or tennis elbow, and um, you simply traction their neck and their elbow pain goes away. And uh, so it's very important that you do a cervical spine clearing. And what you're going to notice when we talk about these lookalikes today is there are going to be a lot of musculoskeletal muscular, bony, tendinous type issues um, that are mimicked by nerve-related injuries, okay? So make sure you do a cervical spine clearing test with every lateral epicondylitis patient you have, okay? Number three, the good old groin strain, all right? We've seen this diagnosis come in uh, time and time again. Uh, few people really actually develop a true groin strain. I think that this is kind of a junk term that is given to anybody who may move a little funny and then they have strain or discomfort in the medial groin region. Um, and so uh, groin strain kind of encompasses many different things. But oftentimes what we'll see is somebody who has hip osteoarthritis will complain of pain in the groin. Okay, it's probably the number one most common complaint that you'll see with people who have osteoarthritis of the hip, you'll also see patients with um, inner hip pain who have a labral tear. They could have a uh, femoral acetabular impingement. They could have a cam or, or a pincer lesion. That can all present itself in the front of that groin. Okay, so I can really go into a tangent on all the different uh, diagnoses that can cause pain in one area. But today we're just going to focus on, you know, one of each. Um, number four, plantar fasciitis. So something I always check, and I've seen thousands of plantar fasciitis patients, and 95% of the time they're plantar fasciitis or plantar heel pain or, you know, inflammation of the plantar fascia. Most oftentimes it's that. But you need to make sure that you pay attention to tarsal tunnel syndrome, okay, and or a Baxter's nerve injury. And that can uh, look just like plantar fasciitis. So make sure you do a tenels there. And um, you uh, also look for any uh, kind of paresthesias and things like that that uh, would tell you that this is more of a nerve-related injury than actually a true plantar uh, fasciopathy or fasciitis. Number five, decorvanes stenosing tenosynovitis. Patients will point to that abductor uh, pollicis tendon, an extensor pollicis tendon near the anatomical snuff box. We automatically go toward decorvanes. Uh, it's a cool name. We all remember it when we were in school, and we always remember where it's located. But don't forget, people who have CMC arthritis or basilar joint arthritis will have pain just beneath those tendons. So you should do a Finkelstein's test or just, you know, ulnar deviate while the thumb is, uh, you know, encapsulated by the or, or encircled by the fingers and uh, just go into ulnar deviation really lightly. If they do have pain in that area, palpate the tendons to see if the tendons are sore. But if they are, 
you want to also make sure that you go to the palmar side and the dorsal side of the CMC joint and compress that area to see if they're painful. And if they are painful, and usually they'll jump off their chair um, when they have a pretty bad arthritis there, you know that it is not a decor veins because you're not pushing on those abductor and extensor tendons anymore. Okay, so make sure you pay attention to that CMC arthritis. And again, I'll have videos that will demonstrate some of these diagnoses that we're talking about today and how to differentiate between the two of them. Number six, medial meniscus tear is a diagnosis that is offered to many folks um, quite often because they have pain on the medial side of their knee. And here I could really go on a tangent because there are so many causes of medial joint pain. Um, and who knows, I may do a podcast on every single one of these diagnoses and talk about why they can have pain in this area. But one that gets missed once in a while, and this is kind of rare, but it's the medial retinacular plica becomes inflamed, irritated. Maybe somebody starts um, running or maybe they start doing uh, increased mileage with their running and they start to develop this pain, maybe this snapping discomfort on the medial side of the knee. And that medial retinacular plica sits real close to that medial joint line and can be mistaken for a medial meniscus tear. Okay. Number seven, deltoid strain. Now, I don't see this as often as a diagnosis as I used to see it. And I really think this is because we've done such a great job at educating um, medical providers on how to identify why people have deltoid pain, okay? So the number one reason people have deltoid pain is not because of a deltoid strain, because in my 30 plus years of practice, I think I've only seen two patients who have had true deltoid injuries, and they were both traumatic, okay? So the deltoid is very mechanically efficient, works very well. It's not in a in a awkward position that would get a lot of unusual tension to it. Um, so it's mechanically advantageous. So what we do see, though, as a mimic or lookalike is a rotator cuff impingement, which refers pain to the deltoid, okay? So most subacromial impingement issues will refer pain to the anterior or lateral deltoid region, and that's very common. I've seen a lot of people uh, get injections in the deltoid for deltoid strains or deltoid tendonitis, and um, uh, for some reason, they just don't get better. And part of that is because this is being referred from the uh, rotator cuff insertion, subacromial bursa, and um, you know tendons that and structures that reside in the subacromial space. So when you think you might have a deltoid strain, really be looking at that rotator cuff, and I think you'll get a lot more out of uh, examining that. Number eight, the frozen shoulder. Um, we have seen this happen in, several times in the past where somebody's diagnosed with a frozen shoulder. And it's, in my opinion, one of the easiest orthopedic diagnoses um, to make. You don't need any significant you know, diagnostic testing, imaging, or anything like that. Um, it's really easy to identify clinically. But here's the thing. When you have a frozen shoulder, most oftentimes you lose motion in multiple directions, right? So you lose flexion, you lose abduction, there's decreased scapulohumeral disassociation, um, you lose internal and external rotation, all because that capsule is very, very tight and restricting all of those positions. So it's generally a loss of you know, motion in all positions. But remember this. Take the patient's age into consideration or maybe an old injury that would cause 
glenohumeral arthritis. So I have seen people with severe glenohumeral arthritis. This lookalike tricked me one time. A patient came in and he was having loss of motion in all positions. He was having a lot of discomfort, just like a frozen shoulder. Um, did not have an x-ray. And um, we treated him twice and got significantly worse, just with gentle passive range of motion. And so uh, we sent him for an x-ray to find that he had severe glenohumeral arthritis. He had no more hyaline cartilage on the glenoid or humerus and um, ended up with a total shoulder replacement and did very well after that. The other thing that kind of gave away the fact that he had arthritis was that there was some crepitus, more crepitus than the other shoulder and more crepitus than you would typically hear in a, in a, you know, the typical person with a shoulder problem. It was not as gritty. It was more clunky. Okay. So remember, uh, if you think you have a frozen shoulder, try to rule out that glenohumeral arthritis. Somebody comes in and they're 25, it's not likely they have arthritis, but if somebody comes in and they're 75, it's more likely there's some underlying arthritis uh, also contributing to this. Number nine, the lateral ankle sprain. We often see people who have lateral ankle sprains, or maybe they kind of twist their ankle funny, doesn't necessarily have to be a true inversion ankle sprain, but they actually have a sinus tarsi syndrome. And you can uh, you can see this with people who have had old ankle sprains and they just are starting to progressively get worse. They start to develop some discomfort right near that ATF ligament. It's classic. It's kind of sitting near the same spot, but that sinus tarsi underneath um, can become scarred up. It can become inflamed. That capsular tissue can really get irritated and cause a lot of anterolateral ankle pain. So uh, be sure to check out that sinus tarsi, check the ankle stability, do some of your special tests to identify if this patient actually has a ligamentous problem or, um, or if it's just part of that sinus tarsi and part of the joint. Um, very well treated with injections in that area and, uh, you know, and orthotic can be very helpful. I'll put up a video of sinus tarsi syndrome so you can see how, you know, when you look at it, it's like, wow, this really does look like, like a lateral ankle sprain, but it isn't. And I'll explain why and how to differentiate the two. Now, the last one we have on the list today, number 10, is the good old rotator cuff tear. Um, we see that diagnosis a lot just because somebody can't lift their arm up off their side um, or they have compensated motion going overhead. Um, you should, and there are many reasons why people could look like they have a rotator cuff tear but don't actually have one. Um, but one of them that I've seen in the past is a suprascapular nerve injury. Okay. Now remember that suprascapular nerve really innervates the uh, the supra and infraspinatus uh, muscles, and um, you can really lose a lot of external rotation because you lose that external rotation. You lose some of that humeral head depression. The shoulder is going to shrug, and you're going to have a hard time flexing and abducting and externally rotating. It throws the kinematics off a little bit, but it can look just like a rotator cuff tear. I actually saw a patient. And I wish I would have had a video of this one. But this patient had fallen onto his back, uh, kind of onto one side. They did an MRI, which found that he had a rotator cuff tear. He um, came into therapy for some prehab and had a very unusual amount of what we call painless weakness into external rotation. Very limited shoulder flexion, abduction, but most significant was this real painless weakness of external rotation. 
So it kind of looked neurological, but the MRI did um, show that he had a rotator cuff tear. So the orthopedic surgeon goes in, does surgery, opens up the patient to find that there is no rotator cuff tear, that it was a misinterpretation, something looked like a cuff tear on the MRI. So they basically uh, did a little debridement, closed the patient up. And um, a couple weeks later, as he was recovering, uh, underwent an EMG to find that he actually had a suprascapular nerve injury. It's very important that you identify this because if somebody has a tear versus a nerve injury, the outcomes are completely different. Obviously, you would do more often than not a rotator cuff repair. That patient is, you know, starting to move that arm, uh, you know, between, you know, eight and 12 weeks, they're actively starting to lift that arm and become more functional. At about six months, they're really functional, doing a lot, taking care of themselves, uh, just not lifting heavy, heavy weight at that time. But if somebody has a suprascapular nerve injury, maybe because of an injury, it, it was compressed, or maybe they had a virus or something, uh, it could take a year to two years for that to get better. All right. So we know that we have to um, talk to the patient about the expectation on this and think about the long run and um, and that it will take time and that it will be slow, but it should come around. And so uh, identifying that is also important. So in there, I will have a video of a patient uh, who has a suprascapular nerve injury, but I also talk about six or seven other reasons why a patient would lose external rotation strength. Um Wow, I could just go on all day, you know, and probably shoot out about 50 or 60 of these lookalikes. But um, I hope that giving you some of these will just kind of spark a thought the next time you see a patient with some of these diagnoses and say, huh, maybe I should just check on something else. Or this just doesn't look right, you know, I'm going to dig a little bit deeper. And that is so important because if you can identify some of these lookalikes, you can definitely get that patient in a better direction. You're going to have a better diagnosis. And because you have a better diagnosis, you're going to have a better outcome with your treatment. Your management plan will be much better. And ultimately, the patient will be happier, which is our number one goal, right? Is we want them to be functional, happy, and have less pain. So there you have it. Ten of my most common orthopedic lookalikes that I see. Feel free to send me some of your orthopedic lookalikes that you've seen in the past or maybe seeing now. And, um, you know, we'll put a compilation of those together and throw those up on a show someday. Um, but, yeah, feel free to uh, get in touch with me. Folks, thank you so much for listening. Um, really appreciate the time that you take to get on. Uh, I had a, a great weekend. Uh, my my daughter just recently uh, went through her pinning ceremony uh, to become a DPT and uh, super proud of her for doing that. And I had an opportunity to bump into a lot of folks who listen to the podcast, heard a lot of great comments about, um, you know, how we put this all together and um, keep the, the content coming. So this is all evergreen content. It'll be good now. It's going to be good in 10 years from now. And um, I hope that you find it helpful in making you more confident with your orthopedic evaluation and management skills. So with that being said, folks, I hope you all have a great day. Be kind to each other and take care. We hope you've enjoyed the show. For some more awesome content, go to orthoevalpal.com. Can't wait to see you there.